Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly and Katrina Blowers with you for the briefing. It is Wednesday, the 5th of July. And we're still trying this new format, Katrina. We'll have the headlines at the back end. And there's a very interesting one in there. We think we might know the reason for the Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg cage (laughs) fight that's happening. Oh, gosh, I really hope this is the reason. That's coming up in the headlines. It's around the 12-minute mark if you want to scrub forward. Uh, first up, we're going to have our deep dive with Antoinette Latouf, and it is part of something that we are trying, um, just switching it around. We, we had some feedback from you guys that some of you do like listening to the briefing topic first. You like to binge on all the topics. So we are very grateful for all your feedback so far. We, we've had the most... I would say thoughtful and engaged Mm. and really kind comments and suggestions. So keep them coming, please. All right, we are going to get into our deep dive now with Antoinette Latouf. Today's briefing is something I've been fascinated by for a while. We're going to be looking at carcinogenics, which basically means stuff that has the potential to cause cancer. So the World Health Organization is expected to announce that aspartame, which is used in products from Coca-Cola diet sodas to sugar-free chewing gum, um, that that will be listed as possibly carcinogenic to humans. And when I first heard that, I was like, no, now what can I drink guilt-free other than water? So Diet Coke is going to be joining things like aloe vera, traditional Asian pickled vegetables and processed meats on what is a a growing list of things that could, maybe, possibly cause cancer. But what does it all mean and how worried should we be? Oliver Jones from RMIT is a professor of chemistry and an internationally recognised expert in analytical science. Professor Jones, thanks for your time. So do you reckon WHO could hear people like chewing their gum furiously and clutching their sodas, gasping defensively um, when news of the carcinogenic health concerns broke? Yes, I'm sure the WHO and the IARC are a little bit surprised to find this all in the news so soon because their report actually isn't due out until I think the 14th of July. So yes, I'm I'm sure they are a little Mm. bit uh, surprised. (laughs) The fact is... These diet sodas and chewing gums, which are sugar-free, are actually you know, quite attractive, low-calorie products. How do you think this news would be received by those, like myself, who quite enjoy drinking and chewing on them? I know it, it obviously does sound quite scary when you start saying carcinogenic or, or cancer-causing. The worry is a little bit, I guess, sort of overblown because there's a couple of things to remember here. So firstly, the WHO and the IARC are not food um, safety agencies. All the ARC does is sort of weigh up the weight of evidence in the scientific literature as to whether something could or could not cause cancer under certain conditions, even if those conditions are extremely unlikely. And even if the only evidence perhaps comes from animals and not from humans, or or even if there's only sort of a little bit of a concern, which is why they put it into possibly carcinogenic. And how do you test if something's carcinogenic? There's a few ways you can do it. Mostly it's, it's animal studies uh, and sometimes it might be cell-based studies. So you might feed a particular extract or something to rats or mice and look at whether you get um, cancer forming or not or more cancer forming than usual. Or you might put something in a, a cell culture. So you grow cells in a petri dish and you expose them to chemicals and see if they sort of start to develop issues. 
The latest news is about aspartame, and that can be found in around 6,000 food products globally. Um, the industry bodies have criticised the imminent categorisation um, as misleading and confusing. And, and in the past, there's been similar moves, which in some cases have led to lawsuits. Like, what's your view here? Are some of these concerns legitimate, or do you think this is just sort of big industry protecting their commercial interests? Well, I'm not surprised the industry is a bit upset. I mean, if you had some major project and someone just decided it might cause cancer, it's obviously going to cause worry, and you'll get lots of people ringing up, going, "Oh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to drink this. What are you doing? You're trying to poison us." And that's not what industry is doing. I don't believe that industry. I mean, they eat their own products. They have families. They, they don't want to poison people. And when you do get products linked to cancer, even if it's not really what the WHO are actually saying. It's obviously understandable that they're not very happy about it. Uh, and it is confusing, and, and um, I can quite see where the confusion comes from. Well, let's talk about the classifications, because they have caused confusion in the past, mm. and they've been criticised for creating unnecessary mm. alarm. Like in, in, in some reports, um, bacon was compared to smoking. Talk us through mm. the, the spectrum of carcinogenic concerns. Okay, so, well, the IARC actually has a, a list of four categories, uh, which are confusingly called 1, 2A, 2B, and 3. Level 1, which is where you find things like UV light, alcohol, ionizing radiation, like x-rays and things like that. There's 2A, which is probably carcinogenic, which is where they classified um, glyphosate a few years back, which caused a lot of fuss, and that was all in the press as well. Mm -hmm. Then there's category 2B, which is possibly carcinogenic, which is what we're theoretically talking about with aspartame. And then there's level three, which is what they call unclassifiable, which is where they put things where they don't have any evidence at all that it causes cancer, which is not to say that uh, if it's in three, it definitely doesn't. It's just they don't have the evidence. But if we just look at something that's in class one, um, right, which is definitely causes cancer, even those are things that we're most of us are relatively comfortable with, right? So, for example, UV light from, from sunlight. So if you go to the beach in the height of summer, you put sunscreen on, you know that sunlight might cause skin cancer, you, you limit your exposure, but you don't stop going outside, right? So if you go outside in winter, you don't bother putting sunscreen on because the dose is much lower. Similarly with alcohol, you know if you drink a lot of alcohol over a long period of time, you're going to have problems with your liver, you, you might get cancer, but that doesn't stop you drinking a glass of wine every now and then for, for many people, right? Because it's, it's about the level of risk and how likely something is to actually cause an effect. Uh, whereas the WHO and the IASA only assess whether an effect might theoretically be possible. Is it even possible then to live a carcinogenic-free lifestyle? Or will carcinogens soon be discussed, you know, something like cookies, like with the cookie monsters, like carcinogens are a sometimes food? The thing is, you can't avoid risk altogether in your life, right? It's not really about whether something causes cancer or not. It's whether it causes cancer at the level to which you're exposed to it at. So, for example, you don't lie in the sun, on, you know, in the middle of summer on the beach, roasting yourself for six hours at a time because, you know, that's going to really increase your risk of cancer but you might go out for half an hour with some sunscreen on. So no, you can't avoid risk altogether. I mean, humans are actually pretty bad at assessing risk generally. You know, for example, mm. you know, many of us drive to work, but there's actually, you know, a, a decent chance you might get in a crash and, and suffer an injury or, or, you know, even die. But you, know, you mitigate that by driving carefully, you have your seatbelt on or whatnot. But most of us think cars are safer than planes, even though planes statistically have a lower chance of mm. you know, getting in an accident. Every day we're always sort of managing risk or being exposed to things that might potentially hurt us under certain circumstances, but most of us manage to get through the day safe and sound. I do wonder with more research, which is, you know can only be a good thing, but with the list growing, with this, particularly mm. the possibly carcinogenic list, mm. that has um, by far the most amount on it, does it run the risk of losing 
its impact. Like right now, it feels as though every few months something else is added as possibly carcinogenic. And I and I heard a friend say the other day, well, what isn't carcinogenic? Everything's carcinogenic. Is that a concern and does that then pose a health risk when we're over the alarm and we start to go, oh, yeah, well, that's just another thing added to the list? Um, well, that's a very good question. And you do see it a lot in the media. You know, um, bacon causes cancer was a headline a few years ago. Um, California and the US, they labelled their coffee as potentially carcinogenic because caffeine, they decided caffeine might cause cancer. But your friend's right. I mean, the thing is, everything is technically a poison at the right dose, right? Even water, if you drink enough water, you could actually die from that. But, you know, it's a huge amount of water. So there's nothing that's totally safe for you. And there's nothing that's sort of definitely 100% going to kill you as soon as you look at it. In terms of the IARC list, um, their job is to review chemicals and, and also certain jobs and to see whether they might cause cancer or not, whether there's potential risk, yes or no, no matter what the likelihood of that um, outcome is. Right? And that data then goes on to inform things like food regulation agencies so they can assess the risk. So in certain respects, it doesn't help when the media suddenly gets this report, which isn't even released yet, and suddenly oh. announces it all over the place because, of course, people read that and they're like, ah, no, I can't have Diet Coke or Coke Zero or whatever or Pepsi Max. When, in fact, the risk hasn't changed. We've been using aspartame for since, since the early 1980s, I think it was first approved. And the food safety regulation agencies in the US, Europe, um, the UK have all deemed it safe. And after you know, quite extensive studies, well, the briefing here is arguably part of that problem because mm. <laughs> we're covering mm. this development, but we're trying to do it in a way that contextualises mm. it. But one of the things I did struggle to find in researching this, when it comes to things listed on Group 2A or Group 2B, there isn't a lot of information, in some cases not at all, what is an acceptable amount to consume. Uh, well, yes, I guess that's because it varies a little bit and people vary. So they don't really want to put a number on it, I guess, because if, if I was to say hypothetically, you know, chemical X is perfectly safe up to, I don't know, 30 milligrams per litre. And then somebody was to drink 29 milligrams per litre and get ill, I'm going to be in trouble, right? So they, they will normally give us sort of either a range or they'll say, well, in, in the case of the IARC, they only assess whether it's a sort of a yay or nay sort of thing. They don't really want to put a safe level on it because it's such a variable factor, if you see what I mean. So you're sounding... I mean, how dare you sound so so calm and informed about all of this? But it seems as though what sounds to me is though you're not too worried about this latest classification, which is yet to come out, expected mid-July, and that it's a matter of, you know, proceed with caution and we probably know that sodas aren't that good for us anyway. I'm not too worried about it. I'm not planning to stop drinking the odd Pepsi Max and I still have a decent amount of coffee even though the Californians don't like it. It's all about you know being sensible, being informed, and um, as I say, managing the risk. Well, I should classify, actually, the, the WHO and the IARC are actually only classifying what we term the hazard, i.e. cancer, yes or no. They're not classifying the risk, which is the likelihood of the hazard occurring, which in this case is really low. And unless, I don't know, goodness knows how much you'd actually have to drink to have a negative effect, but I suspect it would make you sort of throw up before you ever had a chance of developing cancer. That was Oliver Jones from RMIT, where he is a professor of chemistry and also an internationally recognised expert in analytical science. So if you're curious to see what else has made the various lists, you can head to WHO's website. Group 1 um, has 126 agents that are deemed carcinogenic. That's where alcohol lives. Um, and when it comes to the next most severe, there are 94 agents classified as probably, and then a whopping 300 
322 in the possibly category, which is where the diet sodas and gum is expected to join later this month. Um, and if you're like me and have zero medical or scientific expertise, but do enjoy a cheeky, artificially sweetened soft drink from time to time, you could remind yourself that like, if the evidence was really that bad of it causing cancer, it would have been put in group one or group two A. And many of us still drink alcohol, hopefully responsibly, and that's in group one. And if you need even more permission to sip guilt-free, remind yourself that Professor Jones says he's still going to have the occasional Pepsi Max. But do stick around in just a moment for headlines. Thanks, Antoinette. All right, we're going to get into the big news stories of the day. It is Wednesday, July 5. Well, the RBA has kept rates steady in what's been a huge sigh of relief for many, many people around the country at 4.1%. For many Australians, some much-needed relief. That's acting Treasurer Katie Gallagher. It's the second pause in increases since rates began rising in May last year. RBA Governor Philip Lowe saying in a statement, which many people are analysing with mm. <laughs> highly powered microscopes, uh, the pause gave the bank time to assess the impact of its 12 previous rate rises. But I think, Tom, people are saying, this is a pause. We shouldn't get too comfortable. Don't go out and (laughs) spend up heaps. Yeah. So the consensus amongst the economists who are paid the big money to basically forecast this stuff is that there'll be one or two more rate rises over the next few months. So the peak of the cycle will likely be at 4.35 or probably even more likely at 4.6. So when you do drill down to the words in the statement, it did say some further tightening of monetary policy may be required to ensure that inflation returns to the target in a reasonable time frame, but that will depend on how the economy and inflation evolve. So what he's going to be looking out for is some big economic data coming in over the next few weeks. Um, we're going to get the June quarter inflation numbers um, later on this month. Plus, of course, they'll be watching the employment market and consumer spending. Yeah, the promising news, I guess, is that the RBA still expects Australia's economy to keep on growing. So hopefully that means we should avoid a recession. And the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, is in the country and he's had a meeting with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, about trade, education and visa requirements and more trade. Obviously, Indonesia is an increasing uh, economic power and will be over the next decade. Uh, We want to make sure we're partners in that. Uh, So there will be a, a great focus on the economy and the economic relationship. That's the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, there. So as you can hear, it is all about that economic relationship. Yeah, uh, Albo also weighed in on the Ashes scandal. I I thought that this was pretty epic, didn't you, Tom? Yeah, I think Albo's nailed it. Um, You know, the the British fans have been chanting, same old Aussies always cheating. He's come out with same old Aussies always winning, which is, you know, a nice (laughs) thing to say, but it's not necessarily true. They um, they were out here over the summer smashing us. Yes. <laughs> in that test series. But I love what he said um, to the Sydney Morning Herald. He, he reminded the British Prime Minister of the advice that um, he got at his primary school in suburban Sydney, um, which was to stay in your crease. 
Ash Barty has had a baby. Uh, she and her husband, Gary Kisick, who's a golfer, have welcomed their first child, a boy named Hayden. She announced it on Instagram in a joint post with Gary, and the caption read, Our beautiful boy, welcome to the world, Hayden. So cute. Um, even the Wimbledon Instagram account got in on the well wishes, commenting, future Wimbledon champ with a question mark? Who knows? But can you imagine with two sporting parents, there's going to be a little bit of speculation about this child and his sporting prowess. Yeah, no pressure, Hayden. Um, look, I guess at least he'll be having Wimbledon birthdays, that's for sure. Or maybe it's a, a Tour de France <laughs> birthday each year, depending what he's into. And maybe this is why Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are shaping up for a cage fight. Meta has announced it's going to launch a rival to Twitter and it's going to be called Threads and it's launching tomorrow it's already appeared in the app store katrina yeah and um you know if there was ever a time they've really nailed it because there's huge changes going on at twitter at the moment last week twitter began requiring users to log in to view the site and they also imposed a limit on unverified accounts um they can only view 600 tweets a day they later up that to a thousand it still annoyed people though and it also announced it would make tweet deck which is used mostly by businesses and news organizations accessible only to users paying for Twitter Blue. So, Tom, there's been other, I guess, rivals to Twitter in the past. Um, mm. Even Donald Trump has launched his own. But threads, I reckon, could be the biggest threat faced by Twitter to date. They're, they're not starting from scratch for a start. They're already connected to hundreds of millions of accounts. It's mm. interesting, too, how they're sort of positioning themselves, not so much as like a hard-hitting news or opinion, but more like, hey, hey, I found this great restaurant down the road and I want to share this with my followers. Mm. Yeah, it's about conversations on threads that people find interesting, not just firing off um, <laughs> aggressive tweets. Um, <laughs> and and, and not, you're, you're right, you make a really good point there that um, Meta, you know, formerly Facebook, they have billions of people that they're already engaged with, but they also have the most experience in history running social media platforms like look at Elon Musk he's had no idea what he's doing with Twitter he's even admitted that he overpaid 20 billion dollars <laughs> when, when he bought it and Mark Zuckerberg I would say is the most experienced social media operator on the planet oh yes indeed um and this might be a real reason why Elon Musk might need to pull out the walrus move, which he speaks in such boasting terms about. Um, I'm excited about this cage fight now. Yeah, me too. I already was. Um, even more so now that I know there's, um, there's more to the story. Um, that is it for our headlines and this episode of The Briefing. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your nuanced, thoughtful feedback on the format as well. We are loving that and reading it very closely. Um, we'll catch you tomorrow. Listener.